It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Gabriela Santos is a managing director and global market strategist at JP Morgan. In that position, Gabriela is responsible for global economic research and has played an instrumental role in the team's development of Chinese and LATAM market analysis, a frequent contributor to major financial publications like CNBC and Bloomberg. Gabriella delivered fascinating insight on why investors should re-engineer their portfolios for the end of free money, the first of JP Morgan's 2023 portfolio resolutions. Next, we cover how investors can sift through the growth wreckage to unearth real value. And finally, Gabriella explains JP Morgan's third resolution to consider an increased exposure to non-US equities in 2023. And remember, For a roundup of Opto's best content every day, subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the link in the episode description. Enjoy. Welcome, Gabriella. It's great to have you on the show. So how are things? Thank you so much for having me. Things are good here in a a gloomy New York City. Back at it, back talking to clients and traveling. Feels like the holidays were months ago at this point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We've been back two weeks, but it feels like two months already. Um, (laughs) So... um, Let's start with an opening question regarding one of the focuses of today's interview. I read uh, before the call JP Morgan's 2023 portfolio resolutions, the first of which encourages investors to engineer portfolios for the end of free money. So I thought to set the scene, perhaps you can start by describing the market environment requiring investors to re-engineer their portfolio exposure in such a way. Yeah, so I think, you know, of course, it's a new year. Everyone's making portfolio resolutions. Um, personal resolutions and portfolio resolutions. And if we think about the discussion coming into this year, of course, we tend to focus on the short term. Is the Fed going to raise rates in February and March? But there's a bigger read-through of the central bank conversation, which is that the environment is now where we do have some inflation. Central banks are much more focused on that side of the mandate. And as a result, they should keep rates higher for longer. I think that message is really sinking in, which means that we're not going to go back to the environment we had post-financial crisis for nearly 15 years, which was one of low inflation and rates at zero or negative territory in some countries. So this is a very different environment. It's back to the old normal where there is a cost of money and we need to make sure that we're taking investment decisions appropriately. It's a very different environment for investing than what we went through for the past decade. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get back to that old normal to sort of flesh out what that is and to add further context. But let's circle back and cover some of your career history to introduce you to our listeners. I read prior to joining JP Morgan in 2012, you worked at HSBC's private bank. Uh, I think you were stationed in Singapore, Switzerland, and Mexico as well. So am I right in thinking, first of all, that you advised high net worths during your time in Singapore? 
That's right. Yes. So it was within the private bank side of HSBC and they had this fabulous international rotational program, which Mm -hmm. uh, took you around the world every six months and within a different area of the private bank. So you could really get a, a full picture of how the world works and how the business works as well. Got it. Okay. So that's why when you went to Geneva, you were actually, I think, working on the trading team. Were you trading specific markets while you were there? That's right. So in Singapore, it was more on a banker role, speaking to high net worth clients, specifically European clients. Then the following rotation was actually Mexico City. So it was a long 24-hour flight to get (laughs) from Singapore to Mexico City. Yeah. Um, There in Mexico City, it was actually more of a business management role. So to truly understand how all the nuts and bolts work of the business. Mm. And then the last rotation was in Geneva, which was on the trading desk. And there it was trading structured products, specifically this type of structural product that was very popular at the time called dual currency investments. Basically, you were making bets on which way a pair of currencies would go with certain upside and certain downside uh, protection. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I imagine that was um, a perfect sort of introduction, I suppose, into this world and fostered a real appreciation for how global markets function. Um, You're now a managing director and global market strategist at JP Morgan, sitting in the asset management global market insights strategy team. A long long name for that team there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But if there is such a thing, give us a sense of what a typical day looks like for you now. Yeah, so um, I've been here for over 10 years at this point at JP Morgan, based in New York now. Uh, it's where I grew up, so I wanted to, to come back and be a part of JP Morgan. So basically, uh, there is no common day in this role, I think, yeah. is the main message. <laughs> my responsibilities are kind of split between doing research together with my research analyst partner. And we do research on the global economy and markets, all with a much longer term focus. Me specifically, I focus a lot on emerging markets, especially China. But then the other part of the role is speaking to clients about our views. Mm. And that does involve, again, a lot of travel. Um, So Monday, Tuesday, I was in San Diego, for example, and then came back to New York on Tuesday night. But basically, the day begins with doing a lot of reading. I like to get up super duper early before anyone else is awake and just read a lot about what's happened overnight and some interesting research pieces and get ready for the day. Yeah, great. And um, I read as part of that role, you've been instrumental in developing the team's research on Chinese markets. You mentioned China there and the expansion of the Market Insights program in Latin America as well. And specifically on those two regions, what do you think you've brought And how have you evolved JP Morgan's coverage of those markets? Yeah, so it really started as as being focused in Latin America. And what we ended up discovering um, over time is Latin American banks are extremely competitive at providing local knowledge and local products to clients. Mm. And as an American bank with a global presence, JP Morgan's much more competitive at providing global knowledge and global products. So We've moved away from trying to provide Brazilians advice on Brazilian bonds, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, and pivoted towards much more providing Brazilians advice on uh, U.S. equities or Chinese equities. So I think that's how the role has evolved. And that led us to this area of research on China. And specifically, what we created uh, is called a guide to China. Mm -hmm. And this is really meant for 
foreign investors trying to understand what's happening locally in China, put it in context, think about risks, opportunities. And we're able to do that. I just had a meeting this morning at 7 a.m. our time with um, our team, uh, Chao Ping in Shanghai, mm-hmm. uh, Marcella, Adrian, Jennifer in Hong Kong. So we're able to combine that local knowledge together with a foreign perspective and putting it in foreign context. Got it. Okay, great. Well, let's return to that first uh, portfolio resolution then uh, that I introduced at the start of the call. From an asset allocation perspective, first of all, what general principles can investors follow to engineer their portfolios for this end of free money, do you think? So I think the first one is to really think very carefully about valuations again. Yeah. So if you think about the last 15 years, there was no cost to money. And investors were very eager then and kind of had to take on a lot of risk. Yeah. And specifically, that led a lot of investors to the equity market and specifically to certain areas of the equity market that offered even higher growth opportunities. And here we're specifically thinking about tech and the tech kind of adjacent complex. Yeah. And it just got to a point, especially after 2016, where those companies in that space just became more and more and more expensive, but they kept going up. And that's where ultimately everything came crashing down last year uh, when it became clear that rates were going up, there was a cost of money, and that would be the new dynamic going forward. And then valuations had to reset, specifically in those more expensive speculative areas of the market, but for risk assets more broadly. So this is really focusing again on valuations, which seem to not matter for a long time, but they matter again. And it also means there's more competition for capital, that it's not just about taking risk for the sake of taking risk. Um, Investors can do more with less. And here is where we really think that bonds are back. Mm. Um, There is yield again in fixed income. There's income in fixed income. So there's more competition for capital. And we have to think really carefully about whether we are being compensated for risk or not. I think ultimately what we're describing is much more of an environment that benefits alpha generation over just beta. So active management versus just passive investing, which really ballooned over the past decade. Yeah, great. And I want to come back to a couple of those points, particularly valuation. But before we do, I think... Potentially, we can probably split, I guess, the outlook into crudely, I suppose, long term and short term. And if we focus on the long term first, even when rate cuts do arrive, we'll likely have a period where interest rates are above the, the neutral level where zero interest rate policy becomes a thing of the past. How should that influence investors' strategic long term portfolio management decisions, do you think? Yeah, what's interesting is, again, shifting the the conversation for short term, is the Fed going to stop at 5% or not? And then are they going to cut this year? And there's some debate about that. But where there is no debate, if you look at the December FOMC member dots, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as what's priced in the market, is that even when rate cuts do arrive, they will happen gradually. And that rates can stay over that neutral level, which is hard to estimate, but you know, we could put it around two and a half percent, that we can stay above that level through 2025. That's where Fed members and investors are aligned. So again, it means an environment of higher rates for longer without going back to the zero lower bound. So that's an environment where you can imagine 
much better fixed income returns and where you can imagine the need to think much more carefully about valuations on the equity side and for different sectors and regions of the equity market to do well now that rates are higher. So for us, we do this really long-term piece once a year called the Long-Term Capital Market Assumptions. And that's where we look out 10, 15 years. Um, what are some of the returns that we can expect from different parts of the market, just based on long-term structural trends and based on a starting point? Um, and there, we basically doubled our return expectations for bonds and for stocks. Right. And when you look on a risk-adjusted basis, bonds are actually more attractive than stocks. So it means moving away from that period of just overweighting stocks without even thinking about it and, and investors having derived a big overweight to stocks. Now there's more competition from the fixed income side. And just overall, we upgraded our expectations for a diversified portfolio. Let's imagine it's 60% stocks, 40% bonds at a neutral. Yeah. We nearly double that from 4.3% the year before to now expecting um, 7.2%. Wow. Okay. Well, if we flip back then to the short term, we've kind of alluded to it so far. I imagine there is room to be more tactical in, in the short term. What hike, firstly, are you expecting from the Fed in February? And, and where do you think we'll be regarding the terminal rate of inflation? So I do think, unfortunately, in the short term, it is still about that discussion of, well, how many incremental rate hikes do we have from here? When can the Fed pause? And when can they start to cut rates? In terms of our expectation, the stars do seem to be aligning here for a continued deceleration in inflation. Right before we spoke, we just got the December inflation report for the U.S., which showed some continued improvement in bringing down both headline as well as core inflation. So it really does seem like we hit the peak in inflation in the middle of last year. And we are seeing less inflationary pressure from goods, from commodity prices, and from parts of core services. We're also starting to see some softening in the jobs market, and especially around wage growth. That was confirmed in the December jobs report. So all of that together to us means the Fed can downshift again their pace of rate hikes and hike 25 basis points in February, mm -hmm. maybe another 25 in March and then end with rates a little bit below 5%. But I do think it's still hard to have a lot of conviction about that, as well as what that means for the economy, whether it does end up generating a recession towards the middle of the year or not. And that describes then still an environment where we start the year still expecting volatility and a bit more downside in the equity market. So we would be underweight equities versus fixed income. And where we still don't feel we're quite being compensated for taking on too much credit risk. Mm. So where we would be focused on higher quality parts of fixed income. So investment grade bonds versus high yield bonds. It's still a defensive start to the year. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Okay, great. I think that rounds off the asset allocation sort of outlook then for both short term and long term. And based on that overall outlook, I saw your recent CNBC interview where you said that we've returned to the old era of investing, as you mentioned at the start of the call. Firstly, 
why don't we get a better sense of what, what you mean by that? What is the old era of investing? What characteristics uh, define that old era? Yeah, so I think what's interesting is we've had a very tough year, of course, last year, um, the worst year for 60-40 since 2008, and only the first time that both stocks and bonds were down since 1974. But if you actually sift through that and in speaking with our portfolio managers, they're actually excited because <laughs> there's reward again in their style of active management, yeah. which focuses on valuations, which matter again, which focuses on fundamental analysis, which businesses have a path to profitability, which ones don't, which ones have too much leverage, which ones don't. And one where multi-asset asset allocators are rewarded for thinking about whether you're being compensated for taking on risk or not. So it's really one that's focused on valuations, fundamentals, and compensation for risk. Ultimately, I think I would sum it up as returning to the era of alpha over beta and an era where multiple companies can do well, multiple sectors, multiple styles, multiple countries, multiple assets. It's the end of the era of acronym investing, where you could buy four or five companies, call it a day, maybe just buy an index ETF, and you're good to go. No, it's a return to active management. And that environment does come with a little bit more volatility as well. So it's not as smooth sailing as when uh, rates were at zero. And sometimes we had years where the market only corrected 3%, maybe 5%. No, we're talking about more normal levels of volatility where you can expect to see a correction of 10% once a year in equities. Yeah, got it. Okay. Well, if investors need to focus more on earnings, more on fundamentals, should we err on the side of caution completely and ignore pre-profit companies, for example? Or is there room in a growth-oriented portfolio for those sorts of names? No, absolutely not. We do think there is still room for the growth style of investing, of course, which focuses on companies that in the future can generate higher uh, earnings growth. And some of those are still in the pre-profit stage. Mm-hmm. But what I think is different is for the past few years, there was no pressure on any of these growth companies to be profitable, right? Yeah. They were able to derive and generate a lot of capital in private markets and public markets and spend a lot of money just focusing on increasing customers, for example, mm-hmm. without actually thinking about a plan on eventually becoming profitable. But now that's changed. Now investors are putting pressure on companies to have a path to profitability. doesn't have to be right here, right now, but there needs to be a path three years from now, four years from now, for companies to become much more sustainable, positive earnings companies. And that's where there's a really exciting exercise and opportunity this year, which is to sift through some of those companies that sold off last year the pre-profitable companies and figure out which ones will never be profitable, but which ones are making the changes to eventually become profitable. And we saw that after the dot-com bubble burst, the companies that did the best were the ones that were already profitable. Okay, that makes sense. That already happened last year. Then the companies that were pre-profitable fell. But then what was interesting is to see what happened three, four years after that initial sell-off. 
the companies that eventually became profitable during this time frame recovered and joined the profitable companies in performance. But the ones that never became profitable never recovered again. And that's the turning point we're at again. And that requires a lot of active management and a lot of change from these companies, some of which we're seeing, right? We're hearing about layoffs. We're hearing about general cost cuts. They are trying to find a path to profitability now that investors are pressuring them to do that. Yeah. And we've hit on another portfolio resolution there to sort of sift through that growth or tech wreckage to unearth, I guess, real value. So I guess my next question follows then, how can investors aim to identify value amidst that wreckage? Which company characteristics, perhaps we can start there, should we look out for? Should companies have a differentiated product? Should they be founder-led, possess a superior culture? Can we, can we get a, a better understanding of the sorts of companies we should be looking out for? So I do think you do start with valuations first, right? Yeah. So, and, and specifically within the growth space, and some of them are still not profitable quite yet, we would be mm-hmm. looking at valuation metrics like price to cash flow. That's still very, very important. So figure out if just the valuation has reset enough. And then when we think about the path to profitability, it's really important to think about, does this company have a really large and growing market? So is it a part of some kind of secular shift that's happening? And here, it's really important to separate what happened during the pandemic versus what's an actual structural change that's going to continue over the next few years. And that's where I think we're discovering maybe not everyone's going to sit at home and order everything online and stream endless amount of content and spend all their time on social media. So maybe that got a little bit exaggerated. So think carefully about what are actual secular shifts and which companies have that large growing market. The second thing to think about is, is there a competitive advantage of that specific company? Mm. Because when there is a large growing market, you get a lot of companies that try to address that space. So which one has true competitive advantage? And then, of course, the third one is to think about whether there's a strong management team that can have strong execution on the plan. And that's especially the big focus now is on whether companies are able to adapt to this environment and are able to cut costs or adapt business plans quickly enough to actually have a path to profitability or not. Or maybe it was just a flash in the pan. Yeah, sure. And you mentioned secular shift then. To what extent can investors, I guess, overlay or incorporate some sort of thematic screening or approach to their a security selection process, do you think? I think themes are, are really important ways to think about investing because sometimes a theme encompasses, of course, multiple companies in multiple sectors, mm. um, in multiple styles, right? Yeah. And so just thinking about, do I like tech or not, doesn't really fully capture some of the secular shifts. So a big secular shift is still this idea of hybrid work, going forward, for example, not quite to the extreme that we had gotten during the pandemic. But I think we can all agree that there's some room for a bit more hybrid work. So for example, that encompasses opportunities and things like cloud adoption, right? Cloud Mm -hmm. type of companies, but it also encompasses a theme like cybersecurity, right? There's the need to protect all of our communication in this more digital kind of world. So that's one interesting secular shift. 
Um, of course, we can think about different ones unrelated to that idea. Digital adoption also necessitates just in our every single day-to-day life, a lot of demand for things like semiconductors and all of the inputs into semiconductors, which includes commodities as well, uh, like lithium and nickel and rare earths. Away from the tech space, of course, a big secular theme is the aging of the global population. That encompasses a lot of opportunities in terms of healthcare and healthcare services. Another interesting theme related to the energy space is the need to balance self-sufficiency and security on traditional energy Mm. with the continued push into renewable energy and everything that's necessitated for that to come to fruition. And then the last big secular theme I'd mention is really the emergence of the middle class, especially in Asian markets. That's a theme that's not done in China. It's a big theme for India and for Southeast Asia as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. We we adopt a thematic approach ourselves in the content that we put out on the website. So it's really good to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and I guess with that in mind, and from a risk reward perspective in regards to equities, which, or perhaps it, is it too reductive, I suppose, to look at equity sectors that are paying investors to take risk right now? Is it is it too reductive to, to just have a, a sector-based approach? I think you can still have a sectors-based approach. Um, mm-hmm to complement a thematic approach as well. Um, If you think about a sector approach, we would still be broadly underweight technology. There's been a big reset in that space. And here I'm specifically thinking of the technology sector, but also consumer discretionary, communication services, Mm. tech adjacent sectors. We would still be broadly underweight those, but starting to sift through the wreckage, thinking about where there is value and where there is a, a path to profitability. We're most excited about different sectors um, and specifically where we do think we are being compensated for the risk is healthcare and financials. Healthcare joins that idea of a, of a secular trend. Yeah. It's also a defensive market, which is aligned with the more cyclical message of there mm-hmm. still being elevated recession risk this year. And then financials is a bit more aligned with the idea that financials do well when there are higher interest rates, that we do think we are staying in that environment again, and where we do feel like valuations are starting to already compensate investors for the potential of a downturn in the credit cycle. Got it. Okay, great. Well, I think that's a good juncture then to move on to our final well, the final portfolio resolution that we'll cover today, at least, and that was to increase international exposure, especially in 2023. Your piece on the JP Morgan Insights blog published, I think it was in the first half of December, talked about international equity valuation reflecting investor gloominess. Uh, But to what extent has that gloominess been priced in now, do you think? Yeah, and speaking about where you are being compensated to take risk, we would say you broadly are in international markets. Um, Of course, last year was a very tough year across the board, with, with few exceptions. Latin America did well, for example, but let's call it the major region, saw double-digit losses last year. Uh, You saw multiple contraction. But the starting point for international markets were markets that weren't as expensive as the U.S. So now that you've had that multiple contraction, these are markets that are actually cheap Mm. versus their long-term average, while the U.S. is still at average valuations. So the discount of international markets versus U.S. markets 
is double what it normally is. It's a 30% discount. And if you pair with that, if you're more of a US dollar-based investor, the fact that we had significant currency weakness versus the dollar last year, and in some cases we have currencies near uh, multi-decade lows and you could get a boost from the currency component for those US dollar-based investors. So it does seem to us that there is already a lot of gloominess in international markets. It doesn't mean things have to be perfect for them to outperform. It just means that things have to get less bad. And that's exactly what we've been seeing. Are things great in Europe? No, there's still electricity costs are very elevated. There's still some concerns about what's going to happen with energy supply this year or into next winter. But the weather has been warmer. Storage levels are higher. Mm. So incrementally less bad. And then we really have to talk about where things have really gotten less bad, which is in China. China's reopening is a huge, unexpected, positive shift. Together with other changes that they made late last year, much more supportive policy towards real estate, towards tech, towards private enterprises. So we now expect, after a tough start to the year, quite a boom in China, which is already helping Chinese equities and can help emerging market equities more broadly. Yeah, I read the uh, JP Morgan Asset Management 2023 outlook, which was bullish on China uh, for the upcoming year, at least. But then how does that outlook differ when you consider the next three to five years, for example? So unfortunately, we write these outlooks in like early November (laughs) and they become (laughs) stale really quickly. And I would throw out the entire China part because I don't think anyone, including our colleagues based in China, expected such a pivot on economic policy from the Chinese government. And this really happened after the party Congress, Xi Jinping consolidated power and then felt like there's flexibility now to actually be more pragmatic. Uh, about economic policy because the economy was weakening quite a lot in China last year. Chinese government has made several changes after the party Congress, the most important of which has been completely abandoning zero COVID policy, now reopening, reopening very, very fast. And what we're hearing from our colleagues, so Chaoping in Shanghai was mentioning this morning that he was late to our meeting because traffic is insane again in Shanghai. Right. The virus arrived. He basically mentioned everyone he knows has had COVID, including himself, and people are back at it. Um, think about mm. this. It's 15% of the world's population that has been stuck at home for three years. So talk about wow, yes. a lot of pent-up demand. This is really mm. expect quite a boom in Chinese growth this year. I think 5% can perhaps uh, be a floor for Chinese growth, and it could even be higher than that. But as you mentioned, China still has a lot of secular issues beyond just the cyclical boom. So we don't expect China to continue growing very quickly. If we look out five years, 10 years, 15 years, it will continue to slow. And we expect by the end of 15 years from now, um, China to be growing below 4% as its kind of normal growth rate. And the main challenge they have is just demographics. Um, They're Some estimates suggest their population already started shrinking last year. So there's no help there. Uh, Everything needs to come now from productivity growth. And there's some debate about how high that will be going forward. Still much higher than the growth rates we have in the developed world, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. Well, 
Um, just to return to emerging markets more generally then, um, rising US interest rates represent, well, possibly represent a headwind for EM securities, forcing some of the developing countries into tighter monetary policy to show up their own currencies, which could increase the cost of servicing dollar-denominated debt. How concerned should EM investors be about that potential headwind? So I think one of the biggest surprises last year, if we had thought to ourselves on January 1st, 2021, the Fed is going to raise rates 400 basis points plus, Mm. we would have thought EM would have been a disaster, would have plunged, would have been crises. No, actually, both EM equities and EM bonds just kept pace with what Mm. was happening in other markets. And there were even some parts of emerging markets that outperformed. Latin America had positive equity returns, bond returns, currency returns, um, parts of the Middle East as well. Of course, both LATAM and the Middle East related to the increase in commodity prices that we saw last year. But also for LATAM specifically, you know, often it it can be a trouble spot. That's why I mention it. Um, Those central banks really got ahead of the curve on the inflation front, and they started raising rates before the Fed did. So already in 2021, not 2022. So they were able to build some juicy interest rate buffers that Mm -hmm. attracted capital and kept their currency strong. So I actually think last year, if we do a, a review of the year, it was quite a success for emerging markets. And specifically on the dollar debt question, one of the reasons that there wasn't a bigger sell-off, a, big, a bigger issue versus what we saw during the taper tantrum in 2013, for example, is because EM made some changes since that episode, and especially since the 90s and, and when we had crises in EM, which is that they issued a lot more local currency debt yeah, instead okay. of dollar debt. And that way they protected themselves much, much more against any issues with currency weakness and debt servicing. Got it. Okay, great. Well, I think that's a nice message or insight to round off are the main body of the interview. But uh, we do ask every guest that comes on the show our quick fire questions. So this is five questions, just a lighthearted way to end the episode and feel free to answer in as little as one word or even one sentence. What is the most frequent mistake in your opinion that investors make? Recency bias. We always think what we're seeing right now or in the past year is what will hold forever. Yeah. And sometimes you have big turning points and we're at one right now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, question two then. Where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? My gosh, I read so, so much. <laughs> There's never enough time in the day. Read over the weekend. I mean, I like to split my reading into just the facts, like what's happening right here, right now. And that's mm. Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, The Economist, Barron's. But then there's also more in-depth academic research that I like to do. The Fed publishes several uh, working papers. The IMF has some great papers as well. Both of those are free resources. And then there's also the reading more on um, strategy and asset allocation. Um, Of course, we have um, some great uh, resources at JP Morgan. Um, outside of JP Morgan, um, I love reading, especially for um, China specific um, commentary. Um, GovCall Research um, is my go to. Interesting. Good. Okay. Question three What is the most memorable moment from your career to date? This is often a tricky one, but let's see what you have to say. 
Um, so I, <laughs> I can pick two things. I think um, my most memorable one that I'm the most proud of is launching our guide to China. Um, it involved just so much work of collaboration with our teammates uh, around the world um, while they were under lockdown. And I'm just so, so proud <laughs> of all of the work we did and, and the ability to translate that to our clients. On the other side, I think my most memorable moment is, is sometimes traveling to certain parts um, of the U.S. that I would have never been to otherwise. I remember being in Boise, Idaho, and speaking to a group of 300 clients about the world. And I don't know, to me coming, I grew up in Brazil, like the idea of being in, in this small town in the U.S. And, and being on this big stage, something that really stuck with me. And that was my early days of, of being a strategist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, on a similar theme then, if you could go back in time, what would be a top tip, one bit of advice you would give to your younger self? My gosh, to not stress so much about what you're <laughs> going to be doing in the future because you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. being in school and saying like, oh my God, I have to have this specific job. And I, if I don't get this internship, then it'll never happen and everything's a disaster. And I remember my mom used to say to me, um, she works in the financial industry as well, like just breathe. Mm. It'll be fine. You start with one job, you figure out what you like, what you don't, what you're good at, what you're not. And you eventually pivot along the way until you find something um, that works for you. And there's never an end point. You, you got to keep um, adjusting as time goes on. But basically, I just tell myself to not stress so much. Yeah, absolutely. And one that we've had before as well. So you're in good company <laughs> on that one. Um, so final question, and this is sort of the opto question. We aim to speak to the asset managers, the strategists, people that are doing things differently and are trying to achieve above benchmark returns. So what is an investor's best source of alpha if you had to narrow it down to just one thing? Well, I think it's finding the companies that are underappreciated by the market, right? Mm -hmm. So we all talk about secular themes. We all talk about general valuation and fundamental metrics, but it's really doing the nitty gritty work at a company research analyst level to really unearth opportunities that other investors aren't fully understanding or appreciated. Mm. That's how you generate alpha, right? It's, it's when you're discovering something new and that's done at a very company by company level. Yeah, fascinating and a, a fantastic insight. I think to end the interview on that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on Opto Sessions, Gabriella. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having us. It's been really, really great. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.